Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Let me just say from the start that I'm actually not across the creek. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm down here. Wrong. John Curtin School, where we're currently up here. So just a little bit about me. Uh, I'm from Melbourne initially. I did my undergraduate at uh, Monash University. I then came here to the ANU, did a PhD, uh, actually in the John Curtin School. I then went uh, over to Heidelberg for about five years where I did a postdoc. Uh, in a Max Planck over there. I was very fortunate that I was uh, able to do the postdoc in the particular lab I did. It's a very famous lab. Guy got the Nobel Prize uh, to like you no, know, just a year after I arrived, not due to anything I did. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was a fantastic environment. I then came back to the ANU and started a lab here. Um, and you know, my research focuses basically on on how the brain works. I'm interested in. <laughs> in how our brain works. And I guess you know, my driving motivation here is because I'm curious about what I'm doing, why I'm on this planet, and how it all makes sense to me. And that all happens through our brains. So, you know, I'm just interested intrinsically in how that works. Of course, there are spin-offs. Some of my research is focused on epilepsy. You can draw uh, parallels with what I do to potentially um, come up with therapeutic ideas to try and treat diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And I'm going to talk a little bit about brain plasticity uh, within my presentation. Hope this doesn't go over 10 minutes. Uh, you're going to let me know, right? <laughs> so if we go back to the 17th century, we really had no idea about what our brain did. And uh, in this image from Descartes here, you know, he, he basically thought that what was going on was not you know, happening in terms of detecting this heat from this fire, okay, and you know, you would withdraw then your limbs from the fire because you don't want to be damaged by the fire. And sort of he had these little pulley mechanisms that went up here, not actually to the brain, but to the hole in the brain, what we call the ventricle. He wasn't even, didn't even think the brain even did anything, yeah? It was just this kind of jelly kind of mass that people had no idea what was really going on until this guy came along. And this guy, Santiago Ramón y Cajal, a Spanish uh, anatomist, neuroanatomist, that is, he was interested in the anatomy of the brain, um, took up uh, a technique which was invented by another guy called Golgi, called the Golgi technique. He was an Italian. And this technique allowed people for the first time to visualize individual nerve cells in the brain. And he spent his entire career drawing pictures of nerve cells. And he, he also got the Nobel Prize for this. And these are a couple of these pictures, they're beautiful pictures. Um, these are cells in a part of the brain called the cerebellum, that's at the back of the head. These are cells in a part of the brain called the cortex, that's the big bit on the top, that does all the thinking. That's the bit of the brain I'm most interested in. And um, he drew all these pictures and he, came, and he came up with this hypothesis, which is you know, basically correct, that the neurons in the brain are the fundamental units, the building blocks 
of how our brain works and what makes us essentially uh, what we are. So how does the brain work? Well, you know, we, it takes in all these inputs from our five senses here. There's this incredibly complicated network within our heads of nerve cells and out comes all these amazing things, actions, emotions, ideas, speech, dreams, you name it. And how do we do that? Well, we've got about 30,000 genes in our body. That is, uh, each cell has about 30,000 genes coding for 30,000 proteins. Not every cell expresses all of them. But there is about 100 billion individual nerve cells in our brain. And these nerve cells are connected together via what I've called wiring here. Okay, technically we call that, that wiring axons. There's maybe you know, a million kilometers of wiring that's to the here and moon and back again. And each nerve cell receives input from literally thousands of other nerve cells. And so as a consequence of that, we have one quadrillion approximately, because nobody's counted them all, <laughs> contacts between individual nerve cells. Okay, and it ranges. Some nerve cells only receive one contact. Some nerve cells receive 100,000 contacts from other nerve cells. And so it's a very complicated network. And we call these contacts synapses, which comes from the Greek word for conjunction. This is sort of a zoomed in cartoon picture of a synapse. So this part of it here comes from one nerve cell. This part of it here is the next nerve cell. And there's no direct contact there. There's actually a space between the two. And a chemical is released by one cell, a chemical contained in these sort of what's pictured here in these little green balls, okay? We call that chemical a transmitter, and that chemical, the, the presence of that transmitter is then detected by the other cell. And there are really two different types of synapses. There are synapses which we call inhibitory ones, and there are synapses which we call excitatory ones. The inhibitory ones shut down nerve cells, the excitatory ones sort of get them going. And I'll talk about what I, what I mean by that in just in, in my next slide, okay? So what happens is each synapse generates a very small change in membrane potential or in voltage. So membrane potential is technical. In voltage, you know, you should know about voltage, right? Batteries, you know, nine volt battery, put in your, in your remote control car or whatever, or in your seven minutes, I'm, I'm gonna hurry up, okay? So there are these, Changes in voltage will either go this way or this way, and what nerve cells do is add them up, and if they pass a threshold, then you get what we call a nerve impulse or an action potential. That's the technical word for it. And these are the things that are traveling down your nerves, causing your muscles to work, but they're also going on inside your head. And what individual neurons do, and this is what I'm interested in, is how they um, summate all and sort of combine all the inputs that they receive to generate this sort of train of action potentials, this binary code, if you like, on-off code of nerve impulses. And this is where the analogy of the brain being a computer comes from, because these impulses here are either there or they're not. I like to think of not the brain as a computer, but individual nerve cells as computers, and you've got a hundred billion of them in your head. So how do we record from these? Because that's what we do. We record from individual nerve cells in the brain. And we do this in different ways. One way we do it is we take a slice of tissue from an animal, from, in our case from a rodent, okay, an anaesthetized animal. We do this in a humane way. You have to pass all sorts of ethics uh, and other criteria to do this. 
So you just have to take my word for it. We take a slice of tissue and we can keep it alive in a dish. And then we can record from these individual nerve cells. Now I'll just show you a quick movie of how we do that. If I can get this onto the screen. So here we go. So this is a nerve cell. See this nerve cell here? This one here? Living nerve cell? Oh, bad. And so what you're seeing now is we're going to bring a glass pipette. This is the, it's 10 micrometers here, so a hundredth of a millimeter here. This is the pipette here. It has a diameter at its tip of about one micrometer or a thousandth of a millimeter. So we bring this up under visual control. It's, uh, we press it onto the nerve cell membrane. That's what's happening now. We apply a small amount of suction and we literally suck the membrane into the tip of the pipette and we form a high resistance. What I mean by that is gegome. Um, if you know what that means, it's a very, very high resistance electrical seal between the membrane and the cell, sorry, between the, the glass pipette and the cell. And then we literally suck with our mouths, we go, and we suck in the membrane and break it. And then allows us electrical access inside the cell. And then we can record the electrical activity inside the cell. And what we find is that, and this is not just my work, this is many people's work, is that you look at the way that neurons add up, the literally thousands of synaptic inputs they do add up. They don't do this in a linear way. They do it in a sublinear way that, or in a superlinear way. That is one and one rarely equals two. Okay. And I don't have time to talk to you about all the different types of computations that go on in the dendrites. These are the processes of neurons, but this is one of my main focuses of, of my research. I've got no time left. So I'll quickly say, uh, well, maybe then I'll just stop. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was going to talk about some other stuff, but obviously I've run out of time. So that's, that. you can interrogate me later. Yeah. to have the opportunity to speak in this forum, a bracing opportunity to clarify for myself what my research actually is and to think about how to communicate it clearly and engagingly. So I hope I succeed. Uh, to avoid not getting to my research, I'm going to land you in the middle of it from the very outset and then I'm going to talk to you about the project of which this particular case study is a part. So on the 26th of December in 1833, Sydney's Theatre Royal celebrated its first anniversary as New South Wales' first licensed theatre. For the occasion, the manager programmed an adaptation of Shakespeare's Richard III. It was an abject disaster. The morning that the performance was scheduled for, an actor left the theatre in a rage. He believed that he had been usurped in the role of Richard by an actor called John Meredith. As the curtains rose that night, the calls for Mr Palmer were so loud that John Meredith couldn't could hardly perform his part. Nevertheless, he got right through the play. Then, just before the pantomime, which was to follow the play, audience members started to clamber up onto the stage to escape the uh, the, the, the riotous behaviour of the pit. It was at this point that John Meredith entered stage left and threatened an audience member. So remember, this is the guy who just played Richard III, the revolutionary, uh, regicidal villain, threatens an audience member because he has exceeded the boundary of the stage space. Another audience member warns John Meredith, 
Watch out for the spikes. Don't hurt the man. At which point John Meredith says, damn him and the spikes. And, according to the court report, precipitates the audience member off the stage. At which point he cut his leg and bled profusely. He was then charged with violent assault and ordered to pay damages and went on to have a fairly successful theatrical <laughs> career in New South Wales. <coughs> this is an instance of Shakespeare and Riot, which is the name of the project that I'm currently pursuing. Theatre riots have been investigated <coughs> so far. There has been quite a bit of scholarship on theatre riots. What this scholarship has not investigated is the imaginative matter at the heart of the play which was performed on the night that the riot took place. So, with the old Price riots which took place in 1809 <coughs> in London and the Astor Place riots which took place in New York in 1849, um, the socio-economic factors have been investigated. The sectarian conflict factors have been investigated. But no one seems interested in what play was being staged on the night of the riot. In both instances, it was Macbeth another drama of regicidal revolution, of the disruption of authority. So in our project, we want to ask if there's more than a coincidental connection between what you might <coughs> call the literature at the heart of this event and the riot itself. <coughs> now to do this, we have to have an informed sense of what it is that Shakespeare himself invented in the first place, and particularly its disruptive potential. I love action potential. I'm wondering if I can borrow that metaphorically. The play's action potential, perhaps. Shakespeare was at the forefront of a brand new social technology. That technology was the early modern public theatre. Now, the public theatre was brand new in several ways in the 1570s, 1580s. And to understand its potential to make dangerous things happen in public space, which it did. I'm going to talk about the space itself, the kind of hardware dimension, and the software, the writing that Shakespeare did specifically for his theatre. He's the first playwright actor to be actively involved in developing the theatre space itself. So with Shakespeare, I believe what we have is an integration of the architectural fit features and their potential with the writing itself. So quickly, the architectural features. What we have here in your imaginations <laughs> is an arena space. Not a space like this, <coughs> but a space like this, where the actor stands here and speaks to audience members in this way. I'm going to leave you to think about what kind of difference that causes. No spikes along the front of the stage. <coughs> We also have a genuinely public space where a penny-paying uh, apprentice can come and see the same play as his so-called social betters. Now, this is dangerous in and of itself, but we realise how dangerous it is when we step into the play itself. I'm Richard II, and it's a very bad day for me. I've just realised that my cousin Bolingbroke is about to depose me, and I say this to my tiny group of loyal followers. I live with bread like you. Feel want, taste grief, 
need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Now, there's no points, I'll just... There's no points for saying why that's dangerous during the reign of the great Tudor monarch Elizabeth I, who has consolidated power in her person to the extent that she's regarded as something of a deity. And here we have a penny-paying artisan's apprentice able to watch a king deconstruct the whole concept of monarchy from within. What's happening? What's happening here, I want to suggest, is that Individual private thought is being made a public spectacle, perhaps for the first time in history. And the classicists can come after me if they want to afterwards. So what I want to ask in my project is, does this dangerous potentiality carry forward into later eras, where through the spread of the British Empire, we have Shakespeare becoming the first global cultural entity? Does this potential to cause, invoke, exacerbate violence, play out in new ways in contexts such as colonial New South Wales, in post-revolutionary United States of America. And this, the sub-questions that we're asking within this are things like what happens when a touring actor from the centre of authority, Britain, comes and performs on the same night in the same play as a popular homegrown actor. There's a kind of rivalry explosion that happens at that time and that describes the Astor Place riots. So there are all sorts of questions to be asked and I'm going to thank you for helping me to clarify what they are. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to thank um, everyone for the, the, uh, the invitation to, to speak here today at Conversations Across the Creek. I don't often get the opportunity to talk about my research to a, a non-specialist audience, so it's very, very nice. So I'm a bacteriologist. Um, I did my PhD at Monash University and then worked um, at a number of um, universities overseas. I was um, at the University of Birmingham um, for four years, um, back at Monash University for uh, three years for another postdoc and then I worked, uh, it was kind of like a mini sabbatical at the Institut Pasteur in Paris um, for a while as well, which was um, yeah, the highlight of my career so far. And then I, I, I came to um, ANU. So I've only been here for about, uh, um, I think it's 17 months now. So, um, and I came to establish my own um, research group. So I also teach microbiology to the first year and second year medical students. Um, so I, I do hold a joint appointment with the medical school as well as the research school of biology. So uh, the title of my talk, there it is again, <laughs> thank you. Hopefully it doesn't disappear again, um, is Disarming Bacterial Pathogens of Key Molecular Weaponry. And this is because this, this is actually a research focused in my, in my lab. And when I say key molecular weaponry, I am... Oh, there we go, it worked, okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so when I, when I say key molecular weaponry, I am referring to um, um, a large family of bacterial proteins called autotransporters. And these proteins are ubiquitously produced by um, bacterial pathogens um, that are responsible of causing a really wide variety of infectious diseases um, that really make up a large um, um, portion of the global health burden. So I'm talking about diseases such as diarrhea, 
pneumonia, meningitis, um, whooping cough, uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea. So uh, autotransporters are used by bacterial pathogens to establish infection and cause disease by performing a really, really uh, vast array of biological functions. So I'll give you a few examples. So um, some autotransporters have been shown to help bacteria adhere to um, or invade eukaryotic host cells, thereby pl playing a really vital role in the initiation of the um, disease process. Um, other autotransporters have been shown to help bacteria form antibiotic resistant communities called biofilms on human host tissues and sometimes even indwelling medical devices such as catheters. Um, while other autotransporters have been shown to um, um, disrupt the host immune response. And a, a really good example that I like to use is an autotransporter protein called IgA protease that's secreted by Neisseria meningitidis. So if you are unlucky enough to get meningitis, what this autotransporter will do is it will start to cleave the immunoglobulin IgA that should be there to protect you from the bug, um, thereby rendering uh, the, the antibody completely inactive and of course helping the pathogen to, to go on and cause disease, in this case meningitis. So what I'm showing you in this figure is that autotransporters are synthesized um, really deep inside the bacterial cells. So pretend, so this is the outer surface, this is the inner surface. So they're synthesized in an aqueous compartment called the cytoplasm here as modular <coughs> molecules comprising of distinct functional parts. And I'm rep representing these distinct functional parts in red and yellow. Um, autotransporters are then deployed to the bacterial outer membrane, which is here, and which is the outermost lipid bilayer of the bacterial cell, and it's really the interface to the outside world, where these autotransporter proteins, which you can see here, uh, pretty much decorate the bacterial cell surface, priming the pathogen for battle with the invaded host. So uh, what, we, what we do exactly in the lab is is, is try to understand how autotransporters are assembled in the bacterial outer membrane. And we do this because we believe that if we can find ways to interfere with their assembly in bacteria, we can actually deprive bac bacterial pathogens of their ability to cause disease. So I'm just gonna spend um, the next few minutes um, telling you uh, what we know so far in relation to uh, autotransporter assembly in bacteria. So. Um, in collaboration with researchers at Monash University um, in Melbourne and um, continually being funded by the Australian Research Council, we have been able to show using structural and biophysical and biochemical approaches that when assembled in, in the bacterial outer membranes, autotransporters, which are shown here in blue, display this really unique structural topology where one part of the autotransporter molecule is embedded in the bacterial outer membrane in, in a, a cylindrical, as a cylindrical structure known as a beta barrel, while the other portion of the autotransporter molecule here projects outwards um, from uh, the, the, the bacterial cell surface. Um, we've also been able to show, again using many uh, structural and biochemical approaches that um, in order for an autotransporter to be assembled in the bacteria in this a structural conformation, they need help from a cellular nanomachine that I'm showing you here in grey and that you can see spans the entire bacterial cell envelope. So it spans the inner membrane, the periplasm and the outer membrane. Now, using uh, um, genetic approaches as well as a, a mouse model of infectious diarrhea, we were able to show that bacteria engineered to lack this nanomachine 
um, were unable to colonise um, the, the host and were unable to, to cause disease, and this is simply because these mutant bacteria lacking this nanomachine were unable to colonise the mouse intestine. And so, importantly, what we were able to show was that this loss of infectivity correlated with the uh, inability of bacteria lacking the nanomachine to assemble uh, biologically active autotransporters into the bacterial outer membrane. Now, specifically what we showed was that um, in bacteria lacking the nanomachine, that the beta barrel portion of the autotransporter molecule was not embedded in the bacterial outer membrane and the extracellular portion of the autotransporter molecule was not surface exposed. And this was simply because the entire autotransporter molecule instead remained stuck in the bacterial periplasm. So it was stuck inside the bacterial cell as opposed to being uh, on the bacterial cell surface. Now, we've only got a couple more slides. Um, so uh, I guess one really important thing that we showed was that even though these um, autotransporter proteins do need this cellular nanomachine to assemble them into the bacterial outer membrane, um, to do this, the nanomachine actually needs help from the autotransporter's own beta barrel domain, which I'm showing you here in blue. Um, so we showed that the autotransporter beta barrel, so this is it, this part in blue, actually forms a pore in the bacterial outer membrane, which allows the threading of the extracellular portion of the autotransporter molecule that I'm showing you there in pink, all the way through until it's exposed on the bacterial cell surface. And very, very recent unpublished work, um, I guess currently being carried out in the lab, shows, uh, showed that a portion of this um, um, beta barrel domain of the autotransporter molecule is actually responsible for folding of the extracellular domain um, into its biologically active form. So without this key part of the autotransporter beta barrel, these proteins are surface exposed, but they're not able to carry out their biological function, so they're not, they're not able to cause disease. So I guess in conclusion, what we've shown is that a cellular nanomachine mediates autotransporter assembly into the outer membrane, while the autotransporter beta barrel itself uh, mediates threading and folding of the extracellular portion of the autotransporter molecule. Now, as a consequence of, of this work, we, we have uh, uh, identified two new potential um, antibacterial drug targets that we believe, if targeted, could inhibit the surface exposure or folding of the extracellular portion of the autotransporter molecule that already has been shown to be responsible for causing cellular havoc in humans, which of course opens up many opportunities with therapeutic value. So this is my last slide and it's just showing you what we're currently doing in the lab. We are actually trying to define the blueprint for the mechanism of action of the cellular nanomachine and of the autotransporter beta barrel. So we, what we want to know is precisely how these two proteins um, or protein complexes work to, to, to assemble these, these virulence factors onto the bacterial cell surface. And we hope that by doing this, we, we will reveal um, precise ways to block all of these mechanistically conserved processes, um, uh, you know, whereby this knowledge could then be used to um, um, guide the development of autotransporter-specific therapeutics that could potentially one day be used as opposed to or in combination with our current antibiotics to, I guess, increase the longevity. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. And I want to share with you my crisis of faith. 
I got trained as a historian at La Trobe University when it was where we were encouraged to be eclectic, where eclectic was not a dirty word. We were explored ethnography, anthropology, on and on, and folded them into our practice as historians, from honours on. After I graduated from La Trobe, I got pretty much tangled up in the E.P. Thompson School of Writing Labour History and so imbibed a lot of the that and built that on top of my practice as a historian that I learned from La Trobe. And anyone who's ever read any of my work, which is probably none of you, uh, will know that I have been very eclectic in building uh, my approach to study of history. So the crisis of faith comes in relation to a couple of projects and I'll run through them very quickly and then ask for your help at the end. The project that really has started the problem is one that I've previously worked with other historians but in this project and we've been writing a book called Sounds of Liberty which looks at music as a way of transmitting culture during the 19th century across the Anglophone world. So it's a tiny little subject. We've used four units of analysis, I sound like a social scientist there but sorry about that, uh, to approach the subject. One is to look at the music and the songs themselves, to historicise them, to track them as they flow um, across the broad canvas, 1790 to 1914, around uh, Britain, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Northeastern America. We follow the songs where they go. We look at the way that music is involved in public rituals, in the public sphere. We look at the way that music is used in internal politics of associations and organisations. And finally, and probably our main unit, of analysis is the people themselves. We, we follow the people who carry the musical culture with them as they migrate around the Anglophone world, as they go backwards and forwards and, and, and so forth. By centering culture in this way, uh, we don't um, insist that it's the most important form of uh, transmission, but we do uh, argue that by centering it, we can see that it is a very important way in which culture is transmitted. Recently, far too late in the process, we've been grinding out the introduction, and I saw Kate at the back there, um, and one of the problems that we came across uh, in writing that introduction, in sort of Marcus Aurelius going back to first principles, is the difference between and and in. The book was called Music and Politics, and it became clear to us that it's not and politics. In fact, trying to summarise what we've done in the book is it's quite clear that it's not a book about music. It's not a book about music and politics. It's not a book about music, uh, about politics in music. It's a book about music in politics. And they're all very different. It's uh, a work of history, ultimately. And as a result of that, um, we've had to reframe the way we've thought about the conclusions of the book. Now, for me, that's produced this crisis of methodology that really had started a couple of years ago when I gave a presentation on um, uh, e. P. Thompson, the uh, anniversary of E.P. Thompson's Making the English Working Class. Because not only had uh, we had problems in the Sounds of Liberty about working transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary way, I started I've got problems working. That is, on the one hand, how I treat the historical methodology and how I uh, combine that with uh, methodologies like anthropology or, or ethnography. 
Now, what I was going to show you here is two sets of quotations. One from the uh, anthropologist, celebrated anthropologist Clifford Geertz, and one from E.P. Thompson, the famous social historian. And both define one is two famous quotations from Geertz, where he talks about scalability in analytical work, so copying and the general, in order to try and explicate one and the other. E.P. Thompson's parallel quotation to that is the famous quotation about getting inside episodes. If we can't get inside specific episodes, we can't get inside history at all. Scalability, again, studying this particular in order to understand the general. Alongside that are two quotations about social action. One from Geertz is about that we must attend to behaviour very closely with great exactness because in behaviour is embodied cultural practice and understanding cultural practice emerges from the study of behaviour. In parallel to that is E.P. Thompson's famous quotation about class happens. Class happens in respect of human relationships. When people engage with one another, um, class relationships exist. The other side of the coin, of course, is that when people are not engaged in social interaction, there's no such thing as class. So history is always diachronic. It always is understandable only as it happens. So social action, episode, so episode general, social action, social phenomena happen. Okay, so therein is a problem for me because E.P. Thompson's looking at inert sources. He's a student of 18th and early 19th century history. There are no observable historical events for him. He looks at history mediated through a multitude of other sources, but he's not looking at it. Geertz, on the other hand, is attending the Balinese cockfight. He's attending the cer song ceremony in uh, Arabia. He's at attending the rice field in Java, etc., etc. So he can stand at the edge of the crowd and observe the social action and interact with the people who are engaging in the performance of their culture in real time. So how then do I elide the practice of an anthropologist with the practice of a historian who cannot witness history in real time? What substitute can I find in order to make that work? Or can't I? So one of the conclusions of our book is that a song doesn't exist unless it's being sung, <coughs> printed, distributed, passed around, memorised, learned. It just is something else. It happens when it happens in real time. How can we, uh, how can we study that when we're studying the dead past? If we're anthropologists, we could listen to it happen. We could watch it happen. We have no recordings of the music we study. We have no, uh, we have no opportunity to participate in the ritual as observers 
or in any sort of interactive relationship. So the question for me is, can I put my hand up and honestly say that I'm an interdisciplinary historian? Or is interdisciplinary research beyond me? Are we all fooling ourselves? We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.